ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends, and welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm the great Brian Last. It's a pleasure to be with you once again, as the Tennessee Stud will take us down the road of wrestling history, telling us his personal tales. Without any further ado, the man himself, the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, you know, we have a great show this week, but I have to say, my mind is kind of still on the latest Super Studcast and the rest of the story, so let's talk about that for at least one second here at the top of the show. Okay, that'll be great. That's a good place to start. Uh, my mind's been on it too, and a whole lot of people across the around the world's mind's been on it as well, and uh, that's wonderful. What you thinking about it? Stan Hansen is so jovial. You know, he, when you think about him in the ring, you don't think about him being such a jovial guy. But then when you put him on with Terry, it's funny because, you know, obviously on the rest of the story, Terry starts really giving it to him. And Stan just still sounds so happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't get upset. That's that 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 that's pretty remarkable because I was expecting that. And Terry goes, and Terry got into him too. I mean, it wasn't like he was laying back. He, I thought he was shooting there for a bit. I was like, wait a minute here, and uh, you know. So yeah, Stan is a great guy, and uh, he's got a super attitude about life. And and Terry is Terry Funk. I guess that's all you can say about Terry. You, Terry is what you get is what you get. And, uh, and he doesn't change a whole lot, but, um, it's been a really remarkable, uh, super stud cast. And I want to thank those guys. I uh, hope they're listening out there and, uh, just really appreciate the response has just been fabulous for that one. And, and we've got another great one coming up and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that one before this program is over. So, uh, I got my horse all saddled up, man, and I got us a good ride for today, I believe, Brian, uh, something that's a little different than what, what I've normally been doing, and I'm ready to take off when uh, when you say go, man. I'm going to put the spurs to this boy, and we'll get it rolling. You did say at the end of last week's show we were going to return to Florida, and I know that is where we are. We are back in Florida and in, I believe, 1972 here on this program, and that isn't exactly the whole story. You're going to kind of explain to us a few things about the mindset of a booker before we actually get to the story itself. Yeah, actually, you know, I want to do something a little different today. I, I really want to, I, I, I want to give uh, fans out there a wrestling lesson. Uh, 
You know, some people say I'm a fairly decent wrestling historian in a in a, in a way, and uh, so you know, I, I kind of want to delve into something. Today, I want to go right into the heart of the wrestling business. Uh, I want to take fans to what it makes it happen and uh, how it all works. And uh, so, you know, I, I kind of want to start. Let's just start with today's program. With like, to me, there's there's four keys to really making wrestling. Uh, for the fans happen and what makes it draw money. And, uh, and they're pretty simple. Basically, uh, one of them is a, you got to make stars. Uh, that's obvious. Uh, uh, you gotta, you gotta program those stars. You got to figure out how to do that. Uh, you've got to add angles in there to it. And, and then a great booker or a great promoter, he just has a feel for whether things are right or whether they're not right or what the fans' reactions are and that type of stuff. So let's break these down because a lot of fans probably won't know what a program is and an angle is. And for those that do, then uh, I hope that uh, I'm not going to bore you here, but uh, maybe I'll have a little different perspective of it. So I want to take it off take off right away on uh, how do you make stars out of guys and and for me, it's 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 three words: win, win, win. I mean, if you want a guy to become a star for you, he has to win, win, win. He you can't beat him. Uh, you don't want to beat him for a long, long time. Uh, in order for a guy to get over for you as a wrestler, he has to be getting wins against all these competitions, especially in his first two, three months in your territory. So if you can uh, develop guys by figuring out who you want to try to make a star out of, who you think is capable of it, then that's what you have to do is you've got to put him over. Uh, a program, uh, a program, that, that's really the art of putting the right combinations of wrestlers together with a logical reason behind it and, and putting them in a series of consecutive matches. Now, that sounds like quite a bit of saying right there, but basically what you're doing here is you pick two wrestlers that you think are good ta good talents, uh, that they have a chemistry about them, something that makes them fit. When they have matches, they're a little bit better than the average match. Uh, that's extremely important. Uh, you have to, as a booker or a promoter, you need to watch your matches. If you don't watch your matches, you have a hard time realizing who's getting over, who is really becoming a star, and whether these two guys in the ring are, do have some chemistry together. Uh, in, in the old days, when I was actually wrestling myself, I couldn't go out and watch a whole lot of the matches because you either had the fans there wanting your autograph if you're a baby face or wanting to knife you if you're a heel. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you had to be careful about, you know, stepping out to watch a match. So I would sit in the dressing room and I knew who was in the ring and I developed a feel for what was going on by listening to the crowd. And geez, uh, that was, it became a habit for me I love to listen to the match, and I, I didn't want to talk to guys. Sometimes guys want to go, hey, want to bull, bullshit with you or whatever, and I was, like, focused, you know. I'd say, no, no, I'm just listening. And they would say, what are you listening to? And I'm listening to the crowd. 
He, he says, well, why don't you go out there? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd have to explain it kind of like I've explained it here why I don't go out there. But anyway, it's a kind of a feel that you have to have. Uh, uh, and so the program is you take your two guys that you really want to make stars out of. You find two that really fit together. Uh, and then you start to program them. You, you, you run a consecutive series of matches with them. And it, these matches then are based around what's called an angle. And an angle basically is just the art of creating numerous types of matches that escalate the importance. And in some case, the violence of a program. So, you know, if you've got these two guys and they're really a good match in the ring, they have a lot of chemistry going. And then you can m develop a program by changing the match from week to week. Uh, an example of that is, let's say you go to a no DQ match. Uh, next time they come back, they're in a Texas death match. The next time they come back and they're in a cage match. Uh, that's almost an unlimited amount of things that you can do. Uh, it's just amazing what you can do as, as, as these angles develop as to the different type of matches that you can have. Uh, it's, it's unlimited, in my opinion, is to you just you get as creative as you want to because the fans are into what's happening, and the next type of match you bring to them just brings them back again. They want to see that one. They want to see something better, something different, something that goes beyond the last event. Uh, it's That's just kind of a basic, real quick idea of what happens in the wrestling business itself. If you are a booker or a promoter, how far ahead can you and how far ahead did you plan your programs and angles? Well, that's a great question. Every every booker uh, and owners, some owners are bookers, and that's pretty rare. But I was an owner, and, and I was a booker, too. And uh, so everybody does it differently. Uh, some guys, honestly, I believe, don't plan at all. They they just put people together, and, uh, and they kind of let the fans tell them who the heck they ought to be. Uh, returning again or programming or having wrestled uh, for a bunch of weeks back to back. And, but, you know, in my case, uh, then there's some people that plan three weeks out. Uh, they know what they're going to do three weeks from now with these two guys. Uh, and in my case, I used to plan as, as far as five or six weeks out. Sometimes I, I, I would have this great talent and usually the further ahead you plan, the better results you're going to have, the bigger crowds you're going to draw, the more the fans are going to get into it. So it really pays to put a lot of thought into it. There's territories that I had been to that the booker had, he didn't have a clue in my opinion. You know, you would say, well, what are we doing next week? And he'd go, I don't know. What do you think? You know, and I was like, wait a minute, you know, you don't know next week. Uh, what about, there was no need to ask him, what are you going to do three weeks or four weeks from now? Where is this, where is this going? Because they don't have any idea. So uh, I kind of ran my business where I, I, I put a lot of thought into it and I wanted to drive my fans crazy. I wanted to, I wanted to go places that their minds would never take them. I wanted to do things that would just shock them and they would go, wow, I didn't expect that. 
And when you get that and you're able to do that with your fans, you are just giving them a raucous time. They're just loving coming to those matches because they've realized after a while, I don't know what's going to happen here tonight. And that's what makes them want to come back a lot of times. But obviously, even a booker with the best intentions can plan incorrectly. So what do you do? What do you do if a program or an angle? What do you do if an angle doesn't work? What do you do if a program doesn't draw? Uh, Another good question. Uh, uh, Basically, I would start over. And I, and I think that's what a lot of guys do as bookers. Uh, they go, wow, that's, this is not working. I've got to do something else. Well, that, that's only a natural thing to do. But, you know, great bookers, great bookers are followed by great talent. You know, when you go to book a territory and you've got a name and you, you've had success, that you've got a group of wrestlers that follow you. My dad was a great example of that. He always had the Sputnik Munros and the Mario Glentos and the and the Joe Scarpas and the, and all, all these different characters and all these great workers. So if you've you've got great talent and you've got uh, great ideas, uh, you 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 put you work more than one program at a time you're not basing all the things your crowd upon just two guys at the top and none of the other matches mean anything i used to love to fill my territory with great talent from first to last match and program all of them if i could i wanted every match to be meaningful for the fans so they just can't wait to buy the ticket and they can't wait to see the next match they're into all of them and that's the way the business was that's what made it great and that's what made it really rock and uh i just really really enjoyed running my company that way and so what i want to do today with that thought process in mind if the fans kind of have grasped this a little bit i want to use one specific city and a time frame in late 1971 and early 1972 I want to talk about a four-week span that changes a city. It changes the entire market that that takes the city that was small and in its infancy, that had never been big, and creates a monster out of it. And when you do that, it stays there. And, and that city is going to be West Palm Beach, Florida. And one of the reasons is it's my first my first opportunity to to handle some promoting i wasn't the booker here i was not the owner i was just a small person that was in charge of handling the town basically and the publicity in the town but uh i wanted to uh my dad was in the guy that was really involved and he's the one that's making this happen in west palm beach and uh, let's miss go back to uh, 1971 and and my dad, Buddy Fuller, he's he's he has an interest in Georgia, and he acquires a an interest in Florida, uh, which is most unusual. He's got the pieces of two territories, and they're in great situations uh, with great talent, and they're both doing well. And now he has been in Georgia for quite a while. We go into Georgia in 1964. And he just rockets it up there right away in 65. He draws that 38,000 in, uh, in the Ponce de Leon Baseball Park with uh, Mario Galento and himself and Rocky Marciano, the referee. Uh, he comes back with a Cadillac match, uh, Cadillac tournament. Uh, 
And he, he, my dad always had a propensity, which I was never like this. He, he was always, his challenge was to take a town that's dead that no one could ever make draw or a territory and take that and light it up, just make it fantastic. And once it started selling out, he would lose interest. He didn't want to stay there. He didn't want to see the, the, the sellout crowds. He didn't want to. In, it was like he couldn't almost enjoy the fact that, dang, we're selling out now. He had to have another goal. And he would leave a territory when it got really good to go to one that was dead because he loved that challenge of building those dead territories. So he had done that in many different occasions, done it quite a few times in a lot of different places. So he goes, he gets a relationship. He builds a real strong relationship with Eddie in Florida. He's he's in Georgia uh, as a partner there as well. You got Ray Gunkel there at that time, uh, and you've got uh, you've got uh, Lester Welch that has is about to trade some stock with Dad and own a bigger piece of Georgia. And Dad's going to end up at a bigger piece of Florida. But Dad, at this point, is still involved in Georgia. But he wants to come down and work some in Florida. Now, he and Eddie, obviously, I'm in West Palm. They have placed me there as the local promoter. And this is something that they've agreed on with me. And it's a great opportunity for me as a young guy, first year in the business. I'm just started as a wrestler. Now I have the opportunity to get my feet wet as a promoter. And what I'm going to learn here is I'm going to start to learn something that three or four years down the road when I go to Knoxville and start Southeastern Championship Wrestling, these are the the backbone of where I get my training and the the way I learn to work programs and the way I learn to do angles. And I learned from one of the best, and I'm flattering my dad, but – he was, in my opinion, one of the best, and he never went, he never failed. He went to these territories that were dead that had never drawn money, some of them, and he never failed to make them monsters. He made them really, really huge. So, so his ideas and the way he handled business was great. So he comes to Florida, and he, we, I get into West Palm, and obviously, Leo Garibaldi is the booker for the Florida Territory. Now, their situation is West Palm Beach runs on a Monday night. So does Orlando. Orlando has been the Monday night town primarily uh, for years, as long as the Florida Territory has been there for that uh, during this time frame. And all of a sudden, they decide we're going to run another city, uh, West Palm Beach, on the same night. So... They they need somebody to really come down and watch over West Palm. I'm not in a position, and I don't have the knowledge to be a booker. Uh, so they, Dad says, I assume him and Eddie have a conversation, and Dad starts coming to West Palm. And we start working on building the city of West Palm. And it actually starts, we have the first night, we have the first night. Uh, first of all, let me give you a history of the city of West Palm. West Palm's a pretty nice-sized city, uh, one of the major cities in the state of Florida. Uh, the office originally there in the late 60s, they had purchased a huge tent. There was no facility to run a decent crowd in or to draw a decent crowd in West Palm. So they, they purchased a huge tent, and they put it on the polo grounds in West Palm. Now, 
you got to have money, obviously, if you got a city that has polo grounds. How many cities have polo grounds? So they put this tent on the polo grounds. It holds about 1,000 people, maybe 1,200, and uh, probably the largest crowd I hear that they drew there, money-wise, was around $4,000. Uh, in 1970, this tent's been there in an operation for about a year, and uh, somehow the fire, I guess the fire department, gets involved, they come in, they test the tent uh, by taking a piece off of it and, and lighting it to see if it's fireproof. They find out this tent is not fireproof. So they stop the wrestling. They come in and close them down in West Palm. They say, you can't operate in a tent. If you were to have a fire and you got a thousand people in this tent, uh, and this fire is going to be really big and it's going to grow fast because it's not fireproof. So you've got to find another facility. Well, about the same time in 1970, the city of West Palm is building an auditorium. And it's a nice one. It's about an 8,000-seat auditorium. It's made round. And they. the odd part about it is, is they're wrestling all over the state uh, in most every major city and most of the major arenas in those cities. And they can't get into this building. Eddie goes to the building, and he makes a pitch for wrestling to come in there just as soon as it opens up. And they tell him, no, you know, uh, we we really don't want to put wrestling in here. It's not it's not what we want to do or what we want to have. We want to have high scale, upper scale, you know, whatever. They give him a story, and they basically show him the door. So Dad comes down. He gets involved in it, and they get in the building, and they get in the building in a very unusual way. Uh, it goes back to when my dad started promoting in the 50s and, and established Gulf Coast Wrestling uh, on the Gulf Coast, basically from New Orleans to Tallahassee and, and into uh, Montgomery and a little north uh, of the actual Gulf Coast sounds themselves. But it was called the Gulf Coast Wrestling uh, Territory. And there's a guy there in Mobile in which that was the center of the territory back in those days. And his... He worked at a newspaper, and his name was Ralph Boyce. He's just a, a reporter. He just uh, First, he covers wrestling for a couple of years in uh, 54, 55. Uh, in 56 or 57, the dad and he become very big friends, and then Ralph Boyce disappears. Uh, don't hear that name. Uh, I remember as a young kid being introduced to him, uh, and uh, he was a very nice fellow, but he disappears. So Eddie goes down, he makes the pitch for the West Palm Auditorium. They tell him no, they don't want wrestling in there. Uh, within a few weeks after that happens, uh, they change the management of that auditorium. So my dad calls down there and says, uh, look, uh, I'd like to speak to the manager of the auditorium. Dad wants to make the pitch. Maybe Eddie didn't say the right things or whatever. And they hook him up and, uh, when the guy on the other end answers, he says, uh, this is Ralph Boyce, uh, manager of the auditorium. And Dad says, uh, uh, Ralph Boyce from Mobile? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, yes. And he goes, who am I speaking to? And he said, Buddy Fuller. And he goes, oh, are you kidding me? He goes, my goodness gracious. He goes, so Dad gets in the conversation. And he goes, well, what are you doing there? And he says, I, I run it. 
they just gave me the job. I'm the, I'm, he goes, well, I want wrestling in there. And Ralph says, absolutely. He says, why, <laughs> why hadn't you already been here? And dad says, we came and they told us no. And so Ralph says, well, Hey, you can, when do you want to run? You can start next week, you know? So, so now all of a sudden they've got a facility. They've got a beautiful brand new 8,000 seat arena. So they open up on June the 20th, 1971, in this arena. The first night, they draw about 4,000 people of the 8,000 that could go inside the building. But that 4,000 people equates to about a $10,000 or $11,000 house. So that's the by far the biggest crowd they've ever drawn in West Palm. They're, they're all extremely happy with me, like, wow, this is unbelievable, you know. We didn't expect to do this well here. So my goal was being a young guy and being in charge and wanting to make a name for myself and just wanting to see what I could do. I just worked really hard, and they started, the crowds just increased slowly over a period of time. They slowly grew from the month of June on into the fall of the year. And then dad comes to me and he's basically booking it. So he's coming down on Mondays out of Tampa where he's living now and he's setting up the matches. And then we talk and I say, what are you going to do next week? What are we going to do the following week? I'm, I'm all, I'm all the eager to learn, man. I want to, Tell me what the heck goes on. How does this work? And so he says, uh, in in November of 71, he says, we're going to do a Cadillac tournament. Well, that's all he had to tell me because I'd seen the results of Cadillac tournaments. Uh, once he said that, I really knew that this is going to be big uh, because he had done Cadillac tournaments were his idea. I think he was the first person that ever ran a Cadillac tournament in which they gave away a car. And uh, he started out in Mobile, we just talked about, back in the Gulf Coast, uh, and had a a Cadillac tournament there that that did a huge crowd, went to Memphis and had a monstrous, monstrous crowd for the Cadillac tournament. Arizona, biggest crowd ever in Phoenix, biggest crowd ever in Memphis, and... uh, just a, a huge crowd in Atlanta when they ran in the Atlanta International Raceway. They ran in the NASCAR track and got rained, or they would have probably done an all-time record crowd in Atlanta off that Cadillac tournament match. So Dad's got, that's his deal. It's his forte. He knows how to promote these things, and he knows how to do these things. We'll talk more about the Cadillac and the Cadillac tournament in just a moment. But, Ron, a couple quick uh, questions for you. One. You earlier in the show said that you worked for some bookers who didn't have a clue. I am curious. Is there anyone who specifically sticks out that did not have a clue? Well, I hate to mention names, you know, I, I, I'm hesitant to mention names, but, uh, one of them, uh, was an owner and, uh, that was Nick Goulas. I never thought that Nick had a real grasp of what wrestling was all about and how to build a territory and how to draw a big house, how to follow that house with another big house. Uh, and, and there were certain reasons for that. I later on, a couple of years later than this time frame we're talking about, having gone to Tennessee, I got to see how he ran small towns. And that to me was a 
perfect indicator. He was not running big cities. He would go to these small towns and they would sell out. They'd been watching wrestling for years. They'd never had any wrestling come to town. So they would sell out. And then he would book it the very next week again. And they would the house would drop in half. And he would book it the next week again. And the house would drop in half again. And now this full crowd that he had is down to 25% of where it was. And then he would say, well, this town's no good. I'm going to close it. Well, you know, it was, it was stupid to me. It was, you know, and when I went to Knoxville, I'm in a one major city territory. I have to depend on these small towns. And I learned right away from watching his results that you don't do that. And I, I managed to run a territory that had many, many small spot shows, four at least per week, every week, and managed to keep a great crew and to make guys money because I did not kill those towns. I, I ran those towns not too often. I was very particular about the matches I had there. It was a crucial part of my operation. And uh, so Nick, I'm just going to throw Nick Goulas off the top of my head. Uh, he was he was way, way out of the realm of, of guys that were good. There were a lot of good bookers. Uh, we just mentioned one a second ago. Leo Garibaldi was a darn good booker. Uh, did a great job in Florida. He did a great job in Georgia before he came to Florida with uh, – with the Torres brothers and uh, and the assassins and and the group of talent that he had was fantastic. As we said, Ron, we'll get back to the Cadillac and the Cadillac tournament in just a moment. But first, this word about the next Super Studcast, Super Studcast number eight, with the Honky Tonk Man and that mystic from the dark side, Kevin Sullivan, which is released on Tuesday, August fourteenth. Super Studcasts are becoming extremely popular with fans around the world. If you've never listened to one, we highly recommend the three-hour wrestling history lesson that patrons everywhere rave about at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. It's a great way to support all studcasts to ensure the stud will be able to continue to tell his illustrious family's fantastic history. There are now seven awesome Super Studcasts to choose from, including Andre the Giant, Rabbit Ron Wright, Caribbean Chaos, Robert Fuller, a.k.a. Colonel Rob Parker, Hall of Famer Bob Armstrong, Japan 1983, and the latest and most popular Terry Funk and Stan Hansen Live. So now, coming Tuesday, August 14th, the stud delivers the Honky Tonk Man and the Dark Side Mystic Kevin Sullivan Live. Get ready to learn how Wayne Ferris became the Honky Tonk Man and Kevin Sullivan developed an almost 50-year personal relationship with Ron. Saddle up for the ultimate in wrestling history as this phenomenal series continues at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. There you hear it. They just keep getting bigger and bigger and badder and badder. The Honky Tonk Man and the Mystic from the Dark Side, Kevin Sullivan, on the next Super Studcast, Super Studcast number eight, which of course will be available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only. $2.99. Check that out right now. We'll have more information about that at the end of the program. But we're now returning to Florida. Ron, I have to ask you, you brought up the Cadillac tournament a few times. I know you can explain how it works in a few seconds, but why a Cadillac? Why not the Jaguar tournament? Why not something else? Why is it a Cadillac? Well, I think there's two reasons for that. Uh, and they're odd reasons in a way. Uh, 
my granddad Roy always drove a Cadillac, uh, and my dad followed in, followed behind him, and, and driving Cadillacs. Uh, they were a big car. Uh, they they spoke to uh, to power basically. Uh, they uh, it was one of the most expensive automobiles of its time. Uh, so people that you know Elvis, let's just say Elvis loved Cadillacs. You know, uh, it was it was like a a a very desired automobile in America back in the 40s and 50s and 60s and heck, heck today it's still a darn nice car it's really a great car but uh that was kind of you wanted if you're going to give away something by golly make it something super make it something big and those big old Cadillacs had a lot of impact and and he was smart about the way he did it i mean uh what he would do is with these Cadillac tournaments, he had a way of doing each one, and it, it worked for him, so he utilized it in West Palm in 1971, late 71. Uh, the tournaments uh, usually last from six to eight weeks, never much more than two months. He didn't want to drag it out where it didn't mean anything. And in order to make it mean something special, Every one of those matches, beginning with the time that he introduced the car, and that was part of the big selling point of it, it's the introduction of the automobile. And usually he would even try to drive them into the studios back in the day prior to setting up the rings and shoot specials on here's the car that's going to be given away on the night. You announce the night that the finals will be. And, uh, they just promoted it. It was a constant promotion. Uh, that Cadillac went into the building every night, every mate. And you did the Cadillac. Let's just take as an example West Palm. It was driven into that building, that brand new building, every Monday night. And, and attention was drawn to it. The announcer said, ladies and gentlemen, here is the car that's going to be given away on such and such a night. You've got a constant and a continuing promotion which is extremely important in wrestling. If you're going to have a big event, if you can announce it and figure it way ahead of time and give fans a chance for it to build in their imagination, to talk about it and to, to get excited about it, you're going to do well with it. So every night in every town, usually around the territory, because you wanted to draw your fans not just from the major city, which the finals are going to be in, but from your entire territory. You want your wrestling fans, in the case of West Palm, you want them to come from Fort Lauderdale and from Miami and from Fort Myers and from Naples and from Vero Beach and Fort Pierce and all the way up to Jacksonville, Orlando. People would drive from Tampa. They want to see this event. It's a big-time event. So... You have that, and you have each preliminary match is a Cadillac elimination match. When a guy loses one of those Cadillac elimination matches, it's not just a regular match on the card. It's the second match. Well, people are going, ah, it's just the second match. I'm waiting on the fifth match, the main event. There was an importance to every match that was a Cadillac match because when you lost, you're out of the tournament. Uh, he always made people aware of, who lost and who's still in the tournament so that that could create more interest. Uh, 
And then he would, like I say, bring the car into the building every night. And by the time you got to the semifinals of these Cadillac tournaments, where there's four guys left, uh, you were going to start seeing a big jump in your house. Uh, semifinals would draw really well. And then when the finals came, it, it usually set records. Well, that's what we're talking about. We talked about this town opens in June, in Je- I'm sorry, in June of 1971. And uh, we get to the second week before Christmas. Traditionally, the worst time in the year that you can run wrestling because fans are thinking about Christmas, they're spending money on the presents and all those things, you normally are going to draw half as much the last two weeks before Christmas that you normally do. And my dad was pretty sharp. He made the finals two weeks prior to Christmas. Uh, And that finals sold the building out for the very first time the building had ever been sold out. They had a crowd... Uh, the money-wise, over $20,000 in 1971. It was a huge, spectacular success. Uh, and it, it's amazing what it accomplishes. Uh, when you have that type of program and you, and you put things together like that, it accomplishes so much for your business. First of all, it, but when you start drawing more people and you get these big events that really pack the house, you establish big stars at that point. Uh, people see these guys. Now they really perceive them as a bigger star because they're in a building that has no empty seats in it. They're standing up and glad to get in there in a lot of cases. It sets up programs that we're talking about and makes serious fans that, that builds business and it leads to sellouts in the future past the finals, which that's what you want to do. Uh, it starts at angles, these ongoing angles between the two guys that end up as the finalists so that after the car that uh, you can continue maybe to sell out with those same two guys and they're no longer wrestling for a big prize. Now they're just wrestling each other in a special match of some kind. It's a pretty ingenious way of keeping your business strong and making it, making it really appeal to fans and really interest fans. Uh, in the long run, what it does is it takes a city or a territory and and lights it up. It sets it on fire. And some of those territories never go back to like it was before. And I got a perfect example for that. Uh, the example is he does one in, in Memphis, Tennessee in 1959, a Cadillac tournament in Russwood Park. It's a baseball stadium. And I may have told this before, but I I think fans will always love this story. And to me, it was one of the biggest moments I ever had as a young kid seeing an actual match. Uh, I mean, Sputnik Monroe wrestles against a guy named Billy Wicks. uh, And the referee is Rocky Marciano. They're in a baseball stadium that holds about 22,000 or so, and they put 3,000 seats on the field of ringside, and they have another five to 10,000 standing on that field. And they bring the Cadillac in. I'm 12 years old at this point, and I really remember this match because I didn't get to go to a lot of matches. But this was going to be a big one, and Rob and I just begged dad to let us go and see this. We just want to see it. So we're sitting in the stands 
And we watched this monstrous crowd, stadium totally full of people, uh, 10, 12, 14,000 people down on the field in the in the base area, baseline area, and just beyond into the little 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 part of the crowd into the outfield. And they had a big gate in this stadium that they opened up uh, to bring the car in. And they waited till the stadium is full for the impact of it all. And then they made the announcement, ladies and gentlemen, if you focus on center field out there, and they opened the gate, they said, here is tonight's prize. And they drove that beautiful Cadillac in to the middle of the center field out there. It's a it's an awesome sight. I mean, the crowd is reacting. It's it's electric in those type of events because when you're a wrestling fan and you go to one of those things and there's such a big monstrous crowd there, it's it's just electrifying. It's a, it's like a it's a totally different event than any others that you go to, uh, and it has a tremendous impact on fans as to make them lifetime fans. In this match this night. Uh, Billy Wicks wins the match. Uh, Sputnik Monroe hard weighs him over both eyes, busts both of his eyes. He's bleeding all the way down to his to his knees. He's bloody. And he goes, as soon as he wins the match, and he raises his hand, he goes out past the ringsiders on the field and all those standing behind him, and he goes to his Cadillac. And he opens it up. They've left the key in there so that the winner can drive it out. Uh, they opened the gates behind him that where they had drove it through, and sitting out behind the back of the stadium in that center field area is one of the city, biggest cities in Memphis, biggest streets in Memphis, uh, Commercial Boulevard, I believe it's called. It was one of the only six-lane streets in Memphis at that time, 1959. And they opened those gates, and the plan was, I think, for Billy Wicks to go get in the car and crank it up and drive that sucker out of the stadium and leave that way. But what happened was spontaneous, and it was so much better. It's one of the most awesome sights I ever saw in wrestling in my life. Uh, is He went and got in that car, and the crowd that was on the field followed him. The ringsiders followed him, and the people started jumping out of the stands and going to the car. And they filled the the entire outfield of the stadium. It's like half the crowd was on the field. Now they're on that baseball field, and he's inside the car. Now he can't drive it. He can't back up. He can't move forward. He's totally surrounded. And me and Rob sit there and watch them, the fans, pick up that Cadillac and carry him and the car out of the gate and set him down in the highway out there. It was, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. And, you know, and what happened that night in Memphis, Tennessee in 1959, it wasn't just the biggest night of, of, uh, of, of crowd. It wasn't the largest crowd in history only. It was the beginning of an era in one of the greatest wrestling cities that never died. What happened with that Cadillac tournament is he not only built Memphis for for the next few years, he built Memphis forever. He built Memphis wrestling forever. And uh, people will tell you all around, wrestlers that work in all different cities, want, they'll tell you that Memphis, Tennessee is one of the greatest wrestling cities there ever was.
Ron, two quick questions. One, when you are bringing a Cadillac to the arena every single night, what happens if the fans start to think that a heel may win the tournament? What happens if a fan thinks that they need to stop that heel from getting that car? Were there any stories about damage to the car once it was brought to the arena? Well, that's a great one, Brian. I love that because you've just led me into the rest of the program. Uh, <laughs> we're going to that question is going to end up being answered at the end of this, and uh, pretty amazing. Uh, uh, so, what happens in in this tournament? Uh, I'm in the tournament, obviously. Uh, they've already talked to me, Dad and Eddie. When they send me down there, they say, Ron. Uh, we think you have good potential, and we, we're going to need somebody to be a, a top baby face there and somebody that's going to be there every week and somebody we can build programs around and angles around. And I was just, you know, that was a great opportunity for me. I was like, heck, yes, I'll do whatever you want, obviously. So they they put me over in this tournament. They, they, they pushed me through. Uh, I remember wrestling uh, in the quarterfinals. I wrestle Ole Anderson. I beat Ole Anderson. As one year in the business, I beat Ole, which is like, wow, you know, I mean, uh, it's unbelievable. I come back to in the semifinals and I beat uh, Tim Woods, in which which is a testament to Florida territory at this time. It's a baby face match. How in the world do you put uh, semifinals, the last four guys and two baby faces are going to wrestle each other? And what a match we end up having because the crowd is, it's grown now, right? It's, it's building toward this big sellout. It's the week before it's going to sell out. And uh, so it, the fans are just, just really into it. And uh, me and Tim have a fabulous match. And Tim puts me over. And I wrestled then the next week. It's uh, 20, I think it's the 13th or so of December, a time that when you should not draw any money at all. And that place is totally packed. They bring that car inside the arena. They set it down there. And it's just it's just, it's electrifying in the building. Uh, you, and it's wonderful to work those events. I love to work those events where you've got that 20,000 or more people. I've been in a lot of them, uh, uh, up to as, as many as 70,000. I mean, you know, where you've got a lot of fans and they're all excited. And so everything is at a fever pitch that night. And we go in there, me and Shane have a phenomenal match. Uh, Bobby Shane is a fantastic wrestler. Uh, I mean, he's a young guy. He has all the skills. He's a smart guy. He's headed He's headed places big time. And uh, to have opportunity to work with him is good for me. He starts early on in his career, uh, 1963, and I'm almost seven years later before I even get started. So I, I'm less than two years in the ring, and I'm in the ring with a guy like Shane, and we're wrestling for a Cadillac. It's just a phenomenal opportunity as a young guy to get that to get that spot. Ron, as a booker and a promoter, what do you prefer? Do you prefer having a tournament that is over multiple shows over multiple weeks, or do you prefer having a one night single elimination tournament? Well, I've had them both. Uh, I used to do a lot of times when you had the change of a belt or something happened that a champion were lost or he got hurt or what he couldn't defend. Uh, you had those one night tournaments, 
a one-night tournament's always a great thing. It's a super thing for fans because they get to see so many matches. Uh, if you've got 16 guys, you're going to have uh, 15 matches, basically. You're going to have a lot of matches in order to get down to a winner. Uh, but with these long-term tournaments, uh, don't have that impact every night, but the impact you have at the end of it for the finals, it far surpasses what you can accomplish with a one-night tournament because there's been so much emphasis on it for so long. And I think that's what really happens in these Cadillac tournaments is by the time you get down to the finals that it's just it's going to do you bigger business. You're going to draw a much bigger crowd, and the fans are going to be much more into it. So, you know, what we do that night is, is he wins the car. Uh, and, and this was your question. Uh, he wins. Now, in all of the Cadillac matches that I ever remember my dad having, the baby face won them all, <laughs> except for this one. That night, he wins the car, right? And, and Shane wins the car. And uh, so Shane's smart enough to know he can't go to the car. Because they're going to go get him. They're going to get him, right? They're going to stop him, just like you're talking about. So Shane, they expected him to go to the car, and he goes right straight back to the dressing room because they want him. They want to kill him, right? And, uh, I mean, we have a tremendous match, and I've about beat him, and, uh, you know, I'm bleeding, and he's beating the heck out of me, and, and he ends up winning the car. That night, which is really a great story in itself, they the fans leave the building, but they won't leave the parking lot. And the police come, and they can't force the fans out of the parking lot because they won't let him drive that car out of the building. So he has to leave his car there for two days. They have people there standing all the time. It's like they're taking turns being there to, to bash him with rocks or whatever they can do to destroy his Cadillac uh, before he can ever drive it. So he, he, we're there on Monday night. Miami runs on Wednesday. He slides in there Wednesday afternoon, sneaks in there, gets his car. They open the gate, and he roars out of there with it. And it takes him two days to get his car. So that's kind of the answer to your question. Fans are so into it at that point that they're willing to, to do whatever it takes for him not to leave there in that automobile. Okay, so you said this before. I want to know what you guys did. You spent so much time building up the Cadillac, building up the tournament, building up to the finals, which, based on the formula, if you do it right, should be a sellout. What do you do next? Because you got to think that's almost like the end of the big program. How do you continue things going forward from there? Okay, well, that's a really good question, too. And uh, here's what the, well, here's what we did for the next three weeks. What happened? Okay, I had lost the Cadillac. Uh, the next week they come back. They don't have me against Shane at all. They have a 17 man battle royal, but we're in the battle royal. Uh, I don't wrestle him in the early part of the evening. I have a singles match. He has a single match, and then all 17 people come back for the battle royal. In the battle royal. Now, the Battle Royal is a good event in itself, but when they advertise that me and Shane are in that Battle Royal, uh, 
And I'm making an interview that's saying basically, hey, I got an opportunity to get my hands on you, man. And uh, and he's saying, well, you know, you'll never get to me. I'll not be, I'll, I'll be thrown out early or whatever. Anyway, we, they sell out again. We sell out back to back. Now it's the week after Christmas, which is a better time frame. It's usually a good, so that event sells out again. And in the event, in the end of that, two-ring battle royal, it ends up with me and Shane, the last two guys, and I end up busting him, and he ends up busting me, and we bleed all over the ring, and they disqualify him, uh, and I end up winning. There's a $5,000 purse. I end up winning the match and ending up winning the money. So the next week, I get on TV, and I say, you know, Shane, uh, you've got that car, but I got the 5,000 from the battle Royal that you couldn't get that I, and, and I would, I want to see if you're man enough, I'll put up my 5,000 that I won from the battle Royal and you put up the Cadillac and the winner takes it all. Yeah. Uh, so he says, okay, we'll do it. We sell out again. Uh, then after that one, the next week I've got, he's got, uh, I've got, to. Uh, his, when we do that that particular match, uh, he ends up winning. He ends up winning my 5000 I come back. I ask. I say, look, I've got another 5000 And he goes, oh, kid, how are you getting this money from your daddy? You know, he's making fun of me about, you know, people know who my family is and that type of stuff. And he goes, you couldn't get another 5000 You can't make 5000 You know, how long did it take you to make 5000 So he makes and ridicules me about the 5000 And I say, okay, I'll put up another 5000 if you'll put up the car. And he says, no, no, I won't put up the car. So I say, okay, how about you put up 5000 of your money against 5000 of me, and we have a two out of three fall match. The winner takes all. And uh, he says, okay, let's do it. We sell out again. So what happens here in essence is you have not just that one sellout from your initial Cadillac tournament. We have four sellouts in a row uh, off of that Cadillac. And that is what builds territories and what makes things so fantastic. The growth of that city. We never, I don't think there was ever a crowd after that until I left there in 1974 that I can remember that probably had less than 6,000 people in the crowd. So that Cadillac tournament just started it all, just like the Cadillac tournament in Memphis lit up Memphis. It lit up West Palm, just like the ones in Atlanta did, just like the ones he had on the Gulf Coast did. Uh, it's a phenomenal event, and you can work off that event into so much more than just one big sellout. How did the promotion obtain the car? How did they get the Cadillac? They, back in those days, and I end up having some Cadillac, I have a Cadillac tournament in Knoxville in 1976, and you went, the promoter buys the car. Basically, the promoter buys the car, and to be quite honest, the fans always said, well, you know, I don't know how does this work? Does he really win the car and the whole deal? Well, what actually happens in most cases is you... You buy the car, and then whoever wins the car, 
uh, end up paying maybe, let's say, half of what the cost of the car is. Uh, so they end up getting a Cadillac at a tremendous price. Uh, the promoter ends up paying part of the cost of the Cadillac, but he is going to benefit by great houses and, 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 and growing his business and his territory. It's a kind of a win-win for both people in, uh, in that respect. Ron, at any point, would you go to any of the Cadillac dealerships or Cadillac itself and try to work on some kind of cross-promotional effort? That's a, that's a great question, Brian. Uh, you know, and it's funny. Wrestling is, a so, wrestling is such a different sport than, than other so-called, I call them legitimate sports. And I never knew what trade and what, uh, what you're talking about as a wrestler you couldn't get a, the Cadillac company to, to knock any money off. Uh, probably could have. Actually, if I had really tried, I probably could have. Once I get into hockey in 1988, I start my first hockey team. I find that with a legitimate sport like hockey, you can trade anything with big companies. They, they want to be involved. They want to have their name associated with you. And uh, in the case of Knoxville, at that particular time, we had a tremendous audience, wrestling audience for our television program. Our show was on at 2 o'clock in the afternoons uh, in Knoxville on Saturdays. Uh, we, were, we were against college football. Back in those days, though, you only had four channels. You had the three major channels and three networks and a UHF channel of some kind, the independent. Uh, but uh, wrestling, we were so strong. This is an actual fact. In 1977, uh, I remember the sales manager at BIR, Channel 10 in Knoxville, which is a CBS affiliate we were on, slide the, uh, the Nielsen report. Uh, the Arbitron and Nielsen are the two companies that, that gauged how many people were watching your program. And he said, Ron, look at two o'clock on Saturday afternoons. And I looked at that and we were doing an 80 share, wow. which means 80% of every person that's watching wrestling, watching television at two o'clock on Saturday afternoons was watching us. Even with college football as a competition, we were kicking ass. And I probably, had I known what I knew when I got into hockey and what I realized and what I learned in hockey, I could have gone to the Cadillac dealership and where I bought the car, and I could have talked them into sponsoring this whole tournament, uh, giving me a great deal on the car, and I could have saved myself a, a lot of money and, and the wrestler that won it a lot of money, which was Bob Armstrong, by the way, that won that car, a lot of money. Uh, so I missed out on the boat by not pursuing something like that, but I had no knowledge that that could be done. But what I did do, and this is when you listen to it in today's terms, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, I was doing fairly well. I had a pretty good wrestling company, and, and I was wrestling myself. And I, I would take a payoff like every wrestler would take, and then I would make whatever money was profit was made from, from the actual promoter and the gate receipts that night, which is pretty decent money. So I go to buy this Cadillac for the tournament. And I go down, and I'm I'm on the showroom floor, 
and I see a Cadillac that I like. I see one that I really like, and I go, uh, geez, uh, I talked to a salesman. I said, this is 1976, I think, 76, 77. And I say, uh, what's uh, what's the price on this caddy right here? And uh, he says, uh, $12,000. Uh, no, I take that back. It was $6,000. He said, that's, and this is 1976, you know, this brand new Cadillac, beautiful. And I say, okay, uh, you know, I, 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 maybe he said eight or nine. I got him down to $6,000. And then I said, uh, okay, and once he says, okay, you got a deal, we'll do this for 6000 I said, okay, now I want another one. I want that pink one over there, that four-door pink one. And uh, he goes, are you serious? Are you going to buy two Cadillacs? And I go, yes, I'm going to buy two Cadillacs. And he goes, uh, and and he says, so he goes, well, you don't think you're going to get it for six, do you? I go, well, why not? I mean, you know, I paid six for the one for me, and I, I'm going to take this one. I'm going to use it in a tournament. So I end up getting two brand-new Cadillacs off the showroom floor for $12,000. It was like. You know, uh, today's, I don't know, I don't know what a Cadillac costs today. I'm sure it's a whole heck of a lot more than that. And uh, so, yeah, that's a great question, though. Had I known or had I been knowledgeable about uh, what could actually take place, I would have, uh, I would have made a lot more money in my wrestling promotions had I been aware of the fact that the audiences that we had were capable of creating a lot of revenue that I never touched. Okay, so I win a tournament. I win the Cadillac. What next? What responsibilities do I have? What bills do I have from winning that tournament? As the wrestler? Well, I mean, obviously, he's going to pay a portion of the cost of the car. So, you know, he's got that to pay out of his pocket, but he's going to get a Cadillac for uh, for a tremendous deal uh, phenomenal I man you know uh and and we did something in that particular cadillac tournament that had never been done my dad never did uh we i take it to another another level we bring that cadillac in that night in the knoxville coliseum obviously it's just it's it's way way uh, more people than should be allowed in there by the fire marshal and i get that cadillac in there and Bob Armstrong wins it. He's wrestling Ronnie Garvin in the finals of the ta- of the Cadillac tournament, and and Bob wins it. And Ronnie jumps off the top rope on him after the match is over, and leaves him laying. He goes to the back there where the Cadillac is, and he they have those steel stanchions that they tie the little ropes off to. They had those steel stanchions around the ring, and they had a those velvet ropes that surrounded the Cadillac to keep people from getting close enough to touch it and leave fingerprints and all that stuff on it. And Ronnie unhooks the two velvet ropes and he gets one of those steel stanchions and he throws that steel stanchion through the front windshield, that brand new Cadillac. It was like the people (laughs) in the building, Bob Armstrong went nuts. Everybody went crazy. Like, Oh my God, look what he did to that brand new Cadillac. Uh, we took pictures of it. Uh, I shot videos of it. It just worked. Uh, we came back, same type of deal as what happened in West Palm. We came back with Ronnie Garvin and, and Bob Armstrong uh, over the the damage to the Cadillac that was caused after Garvin losing it. 
Well, as we begin to wrap things up this week, Ron, we want to remind everyone that you can like Ron on Facebook, the page Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. You can, of course, follow the Tennessee stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast. Don't forget to check out the Tennessee Studs website at tnstud.com for all the stud cast, the super stud cast, the rest of the story, souvenirs, fan reviews, and so much more, tnstud.com. And as we mentioned before, the next super stud cast, super stud cast number eight, will be available on Tuesday, August 14th with the Honky Tonk Man and Kevin Sullivan. It is available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Don't forget, all seven Super Studcasts and the rest of the story are now available. Ron, as we begin to wrap things up, where are we going next week? Well, I gave some thought to this. Uh, you know, we've talked about a great event here, uh, one that really, really set the tone for West Palm Beach as a wrestling city and a great one uh, after this event. And and uh, Bobby Shane's in that championship match, wins that car. And I want to go back to the West Palm again. And I want to, to talk to the fans and, and, and relate to the fans the history of, of this guy. Bobby Shane it was one of the most talented young wrestlers that ever lived. And uh, I want to profile uh Bobby Shane a little bit. I want to I want to talk about Bobby Shane and uh Bobby Shane is a it's a horrible. He has a horrible ending to his life uh in Tampa Bay, you know, he it's it's terrible. And uh you know, that's where we're going to go next week. Next week we're going to profile one of the greatest wrestlers that ever lived and died way way too young in his lifetime and uh That's what I want to do next week. There you hear it. Next week on the show, a figure who has captivated wrestling fans for decades, Bobby Shane. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 